The beauty of the gospel is that when people come to faith, Christ is in them as their hope of glory. Furthermore, Paul told the believers in Rome that if Christ is in them, bodies dead to sin, but spirit is life. That is, their dead spirits have come now alive. Also, people who are in the faith have Christ in them. He wrote to the churches in Corinth. And people of all backgrounds in Christ's church have Christ in them. That's in Colossians. So having Christ in us by faith is the beginning of eternal and abundant life But the daily adventure and the journey of life of God's people is to grow in Christ. So as to become more like him. And Paul told the churches in Corinth that they were being made holy in Christ. And believers have been created in Christ for good works, which God enables them to do by grace due to the death of Christ for them. In fact, we will come to see this morning how God works in people through Christ who humbled himself in death. Again, it's a lot about the cross. And then um, as a result of receiving Christ's righteousness through faith, believers may be presented complete in him. And what I've now given you is a survey of the covenant relationship. I gave you four scriptures about what it means to have Christ in us, God in us one way, but also what it means for us to be in God. That's the covenant reciprocal relationship. He is our God and we are his people and and vice versa. So the key phrase this morning in all of our passages is that believers who are in Christ will be enabled to be like him producing good fruit in him. So now let's go to our passages. Uh, Again, it seems like every week there's like two halves to things, okay? So much of the Philippians passage could be summed up this way. In Christ, Paul commands believers to unity, seeing others in humility, and then he commands that they be as Christ who laid his divinity, his very God nature, aside in many ways so that he would die on the cross. So let's look at the introduction, which can be summed up on the basis of their encouragement, again, being in Christ. Paul requests believers in Philippi that they have unity in his love, not selfish conceit, but humbly regarding others above themselves. So now let's look at the words of Paul 
in detail as he wrote them. So he starts out, if any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of spirit, if any inmost feelings and compassions. So he starts out, he starts out and he asks the believers in Philippi for self-examination Questions, And this is always a, a good way to pray every once in a while. Examine ourselves to see where we are. In other words, what he's saying is each church needs to answer if the members collectively, not just me as a person, but collectively, are they first encouraged in Christ, second, comforted in God's love, third, having fellowship from God's spirit, and fourth, having feelings of compassion. If they can say, yes, they are united in all of these, then he has a command for them, but this command is followed by blessing. They result in a blessing. In fact, obedience results in a blessing. So Paul continues and he says, you must fill my joy so that the same you all may be thinking. The same love, having same soul, one thinking. Well, let's just sort of sum this up. What's the key idea here? Unity produces joy, and these are two of the main themes of the letter. If they are united in encouragement, love, fellowship, and compassion in Christ, then the apostle who planted this church, their church, he will be full of joy. And now unity flows from Christ. If we're in him, it flows from him to us. All of this unity and the benefit of having united thinking, it will result in one soul and love through being in Christ. Then he continues, nothing through selfishness nor through conceit, but in the humility of mind, Regarding each other, surpassing of themselves. So here we have pride contrasted with humility. Selfish pride goes nowhere. I hope we're finding that out. But the humility of putting the needs of others first is what the apostle is advising. Advising that this church will do. And then completing the introduction, he says, not the things of themselves, each being concerned, but also the things of all others. So we're talking about individuals in relation to the whole local body. People in Christ need to always put others above themselves. Again, easier said than done. Then he wraps up this first part of our scriptures this morning, commanding that they think as Christ, who being God, emptied himself, having taken on servanthood in likeness of men and humbled himself, obedient to death on a cross. 
returning back to Paul's words again, and I'm in verse 5. This you all must be thinking in yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus. So Paul commands all the followers of Messiah Savior in Philippi to be thinking as he thought, as Christ thought. Now, he will elaborate on this in the following sentences, starting with this. He in the form of God being, not he considered to be grasped, to be equal to God. This is heavy. Paul is writing under the inspiration of God, and he declares Jesus as being the form of God. Jesus equals God in his very nature. However, Jesus did not consider that he had a grasp at always appearing to men as the all-powerful spirit God. Instead, we're told, he made empty himself. He gave up himself. He voided himself. Form of servant having taken. In the likeness of men having become. So there's two things going on here. What the Savior God did is amazing. It's really unthinkable to humans. I, I can say the words. I can say I understand the words. But do I really understand what happened? Do we really understand what happened? Being the form of God, he effectively emptied himself of that equality. He made himself void of his true nature to all appearances taking on a servant's form. As I thought about this, I realized this is a double irony. First of all, the one who created men in his image and likeness, way back in the first chapter, he became the likeness of men. He became the likeness of the creature, but he's the creator. And and, and secondly, the very one whom Zechariah, John's father, said would enable men to serve God in holiness and righteousness, in Luke's introduction, he did this by taking on the form of a servant. This is what we call a paradox. The one who enabled us to serve, which goes against our nature, took on the very nature of a servant. Do we really understand that irony? And then the first half begins, he says, in form. Having been found as a man, he humbled himself. Having become obedient until death, of death of a cross. He humbly, willingly, obeyed his father's will. And we must understand this was also his own will to die in the place of all sinners. So God may forgive and reconcile all people in him, in Christ, by faith in his substitutionary death 
for them. This is what Paul calls in other places the great mystery, something that had been hidden for millennia and is now fully revealed in Jesus Christ by what he did. Now let's look at the second half of our readings for this morning. We're told that after this, God lifted the Lord to be worshipped in glory. So in fear, the Christians in Philippi may cooperate in God's saving work in them, having hearts made good to produce good. So let's go to the, the little addendum in the NIV makes it a new paragraph, and it is an amazing thought. So after Christ died, God raised him high that in his name every knee may bow to God's glory so that in fear and trembling their salvation must be worked because God works in them. All right, let's look at Paul's words. He said, for this reason... Christ humbling himself to death on the cross. God also raised him to the highest and gave to him the name above every name that in the name of Jesus, again, that means Savior, Yeshua, salvation, every knee might bow of heaven and of earth and of under earth and every tongue might confess. We'll break it off there. So because Jesus died on a cross for men as man, as the perfect man, God exalted him, raised him to the highest. And as a result of where he is now, every single creature that has knees will bow those knees at his name in worship of him. And sometimes at the manger scene, we see animals bowing before Jesus when he was born. Why? What are they confessing? What are we confessing? That Lord is Jesus Christ to glory of God, Father, Father God. So all who confess the Savior as Lord of everything bring glory to Father God as he reconciles and redeems people through the work of Jesus Christ the Savior. His death for sin and his resurrection to new life is the greatest miracle. Uh, I don't care what anybody says. I think that's it. That's how reconciliation happens. That's how we get adopted as God's children. And Paul continues and he says, so that my beloved, even as always you all have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And I got out a Bible map with a scale of miles. And the shortest way from Philippi to Rome, where Paul was a prisoner and writing this letter, was by both land and sea. And we're talking about 800 miles. 
probably about a three-month journey. So he's very, very absent from them. But what is he commanding? He's saying, with fear and trembling, the of yourself salvation you all must be working. We shouldn't be lazy. We have responsibility. Okay. Paul's commanding the Christians in Philippi to be working on their salvation with a reverent fear and trembling before the awesome God who created everything and sovereignly rules over everything. And if there was a period here, it would be pretty bad for us. But thankfully, there's just a semicolon. So the last words of Paul we consider this morning, he says, because God is working in you all, both to will and to do for the sake of his good pleasure. So believers can fulfill the responsibility to work on salvation because God's will is to work in them so that his will is done and he may have the pleasure of completing his work of salvation in them, in us, in his son. So again, this isn't just for a church 2,000 years ago. Let's apply it to ourselves right now. We must go deeper in Christ to become like him in humility. So we are willing to work sacrificially for the good of others. I think that sums up our whole Philippians passage. You see, God works in people through Christ who humbled himself in death. And we must have the same heart, the same mind, the same attitude, the same thinking. Now let's go to uh, this gospel parable and see how it all ties together. Jesus said, good trees are not making rotten fruit and vice versa. Trees are known by their fruit. People bear good or evil from what is in their heart. So let me uh, go through this word for word. For not being good tree making rotten fruit, neither again rotten tree making good fruit. Now Jesus begins with a very simple and true statement. Good trees do not make rotten fruit. Conversely, rotten trees do not make good fruit. Now he goes on and elaborates, because each tree from its own fruit is being made known, because not of thorns they are gathering figs, nor of bramble bush grapes are they gathering. Now he's talking about not only trees, but people, as we will soon discover. A tree is known by the fruit that it either does or does not bear. And then Jesus states the obvious. (laughs) Grapes do not come from bramble bushes, but from vines, from grapevines. And figs do not come from thorns. Now, this is my own, like, weird mind. Okay, you're not going to get a fig out of a thorn. 
But as my sister and I were growing up, right along the property line in the backyard was just a whole row over 100 feet long of raspberry bushes. And there's thorns on them. But we used to pick the raspberries to our heart's content for whatever that's worth. I don't want to argue with the Lord. So we didn't get figs. All right. Now he continues to the punchline. The good man out of the good treasure of the heart, he is bearing good. So what's this about good hearts? Those receiving God's gracious gift of the Holy Spirit through Jesus have their hearts filled with the good fruit of the Holy Spirit. So we must cooperate by faith with God's gracious work in us to serve him with fear and trembling so his spirit may purify our hearts to bear good fruit. This is why the Holy Spirit is so important and I think what motivated me to write the last Vestry Voices article. The Holy Spirit bears good fruit in the faithful people. Now Jesus continues with the other side of the coin. And the evil man from the evil, he's bearing evil. This is a strong warning to those who do not have God's spirit in them by the faith of Jesus. That they, will, that they are still under the control of the evil one. That's how John finishes his first epistle right before the very, very end. And whatever good they try to do, sadly, will ultimately fail. They won't be able to do it. And then he concludes, but from the abundance of the heart, his mouth is speaking. And when he's talking about the abundance of the heart, we must understand this is true both of evil people without God's spirit bearing evil fruit and people who have been made good by the grace of God in the Holy Spirit who is given by the faith of Jesus Christ. All who cooperate with God's working in them through Messiah Christ will bear good fruit because Christ humbled himself to death on a cross. And when we receive grace to come to Christ in humility, he is in us by the Holy Spirit and we are in him and we continue to grow to be like him. God works in people through Christ who humbled himself in death. So let me wrap this all up. All who are in Christ have unity in him, becoming like him in humility. Humility to one another and humility to God. And they will be able to die to themselves, to worship the one who died for them so they may cooperate in the work that God is doing in them so that they bear good fruit, good fruit in the spirit by renewed hearts. That's what it's all about. Be filled with the spirit, renewed. God works in people through Christ who humbled himself to death.